Hi, everyone. This is Stefan, and welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. Today, Michael and I are speaking with Stephen Alexander. Stephen is a MITAC Science Policy Fellow and Science Advisor based at Fisheries and Oceans Canada. He is also an Adjunct Assistant Professor at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Prior to this, he was a postdoctoral research fellow affiliated with both the National Social Environmental Synthesis Center in the U.S. and the Stockholm Resilience Center in Sweden. Stephen calls himself an environmental social scientist, and his research focuses on community-based conservation and natural resource management, environmental governance, and the human dimensions of environmental change. Stephen is an expert on network analysis, both in social networks and social ecological networks. Much of his work has focused on using network analysis to understand fisheries and marine governance in the Caribbean. He has also recently led a perspective paper published in Nature Sustainability titled Qualitative Data Sharing and Synthesis for Sustainability science. In the podcast, we discuss both network analysis and the challenges and directions for qualitative data sharing. Enjoy. Well then, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for coming on. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Stefan. I really appreciate the uh, invitation and opportunity to sit and chat with uh, you and Michael. As I noted prior, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of the show. I've been really enjoying it. And I must be honest that I've been so engrossed in some of the episodes that I felt like I was sitting there with you all and found myself uttering words out loud and then realizing nobody was going to hear me because <laughs> I was just listening to an episode. Like that's how intimate I felt with the conversations and just so enthralled with what was being discussed. <laughs> that's a no, good that's awesome. for us. So that's either a sign of being like really nerdy or I need to do a better job listening and not actually speaking. So maybe that's, you know, one or the other or both. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Well, let's, uh, as, as you know, let's hear a little bit about your background. How did you get into science and how did you get into the, the current position that you are in now? Yeah, thanks. That's a, it's a great question. And I think something that's so always on people's minds, especially folks who are in, in and out of academia and kind of in the early and mid part of their career is, you know, what's your, what's your journey and what's your trajectory? And, and for some, it's this very clear path. I wanted to be a marine biologist from the time I was four to uh, others that are more circuitous, circuitous. And I would mm. put mine in the latter. There's always been uh, um, a, a fairly clear vision of the kind of work I've been interested in and, uh, you know, what I want that work to contribute to, but recognizing that they can play out in many different ways. And so I always, I always see a common thread in what that work is and, and how it plays out in, in thinking about, you know, our relationship with the environment. It started when I, when I think about my undergrad, my undergrad was in geology, uh, went to a small liberal arts school, but geology spoke to me. I was interested. I wanted to be a teacher as a backup, even though I didn't want to be in, you know, a traditional public school setting as a backup. Well, what could I teach? I could teach earth science. Okay. Uh, geology is a, is a great uh, avenue to be able to do that. And especially when you think about, you know, particularly public schools and, and having uh, particular courses that have to be taught. Uh, but what was interesting is then as I started going down that road of geology, I, I really, uh, I, I really came to uh, feel that, you know, rocks were underappreciated. There were so many stories that the stones could tell. And having spent a lot of time hiking and backpacking and, and leading trips from an early age with, with high school students, uh, 
I realized, wow, you know, like traveling through places like the Colorado Plateau in Utah and Arizona, it's like, man, these canyon walls, there's so much they can tell or hiking through the Adirondacks. The, 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 the clues you get about the kind of history of that landscape is so powerful. And I was like, oh, everybody, you know, people talk about, you know, the, the charismatic megafauna, but I just say the biological world in general gets way more, um, attention than thinking about, uh, the geological history. And, and then from there, it wasn't, you know, from these, these little stories to thinking about the, the macro scale. And that was something else that really, uh, blew my mind. And I think I really took away from, Studying geology was this ability to go from the micro, thinking about looking at thin sections of, of sedimentary rock and understanding their origins, to then thinking about plate tectonics and these massive uh, geological events that shaped landscapes, which in turn shaped the ecology. And so this really tight connection between geology and ecology and the environment. Why am I saying all this? Because all of this for me was really about, you know, learning about natural history and about the environment as a way to then, how do we connect people to their environment? How do we help people to gain a better appreciation for the natural world and how we interact with it in the hopes that we do a better job of being stewards, right? So this idea of uh, teaching and leading trips was really about this idea of stewardship. So I left, finished my undergraduate, and really kind of continued on this path of um working in the field of uh, uh, education, field education, place-based education, uh, and ended up working for a few different nonprofit organizations, uh, particularly out in the Western U.S. Uh, they work with, uh, one, the Teton Science Schools was really focused on working with um, K-12 through 12 students and kind of really focused on place-based education, connecting students to place, whether they're in an urban environment, or in their uh, backyard, or whether they were coming to visit the Tetons or Yellowstone. And I spent a good chunk of about 10 years uh, focused on field education, field science, uh, as a way to connect people uh, to their environment, to think about stewardship and to think about understanding complexity, thinking about, uh, you know, how we, you know, gain some of the critical thinking skills uh, and the, the, um, kind of the emotive piece to, to navigate our way through, through the world and, and work both with K through 12, but then also spend time working with undergraduate students as well. And so that was really, uh, really rewarding work. Um, and something that, you know, I spent quite a bit of time doing. In, in that journey, I found myself, uh, I spent three years working, uh, for, uh, St. Lawrence University helping to run a semester program. And, you know, I can't help but think about some of the work you've done, Michael, with uh, the study abroad program, uh, mm. at Dartmouth. And for me, this, uh, this semester program I was, I was helping to run, the whole premise of it was to immerse students in nature and the study of humans relationship with nature, right? So they took this idea of like, a study abroad, but instead of being immersed in the Spanish culture or the French culture or Costa Rican culture and environment, it was about immersing them in nature and humans' relationship with nature. So it was uh, based in a yurt village that was off the grid, canoe and hike access only, and the idea being that they would take us. They took a suite of courses: philosophy, English, uh, natural history, uh, cultural history, and kind of environmental history, and taking this kind of 
multidisciplinary perspective to reflect on our relationship with the natural world. And having done that for three years, I was, you know, this was, this was my jive. I was really feeling this is, this is the kind of, this is my calling and this is what I want to be doing. Uh, but at the same time, two things happened during that time. One, I realized that if I wanted to stay in, uh, higher education, uh, and working with university students, that just having a master's wouldn't cut it. There, there is a bit of, um, uh, a, you know, a, a perception and a need for credibility and legitimacy uh, it, across many universities to to have a PhD to get into higher levels of administration, which is kind of ironic. Uh, but then the the other piece was I also found myself in the the kind of uh, courses uh, and material that I wanted to be exploring with students and challenging students with to 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 uh, again back to this this thread of being stewards, uh, was shifting. It was shifting away from just focused on kind of natural history, ecology, and geology to thinking about complexities of resource use and the role of, uh, cultural history and environmental history and how those shape our relationships with the environment and thinking about the actual, the human dimensions of it, right? And, and thinking about, uh, the complexities of those interactions and the need to start to unpack those to better understand how do we go about being better stewards. Um, and so it was kind of those two things that really motivated me to go back uh, later in my career and life to to pursue a PhD. Uh, I learned early on that, uh, you know, when, when you sign up to do a PhD, you, you need to have a strong motivation, uh, and a strong question that you, that you're passionate about to say, Oh, I'm, I'm just interested in, in, in teaching afterwards. Um, that, that, that's great, but that's going to be a long path to, uh, to be successful in, uh, in, in doing a PhD. Uh, but I realized as soon as I started doing it, I, I really found the question and, and through exploration realized you know, this is the direction I want to go. And that's what brought me down the line of asking similar kinds of questions as both of, as both of you are involved in, which is really thinking about, you know, the, the conditions and, uh, social dimensions related to, uh, sustainably and equitably, um, uh, managing natural resources. What are those conditions for success? How do we, um, how do we set up the appropriate management and governance arrangements uh, that can lead to, uh, you know, not just ecologically sustainable, but socially equitable, equitable uh, outcomes. Um, and so that brought me down the path. And, and it was through doing my PhD that I then really fell in love with, with, with research. So I went from this, you know, the motivation was because I wanted to teach and work with university students, but then just, you know, became, you know, just enthralled and really enjoyed the the creative process of doing research and asking questions and collaborating and contributing to, you know, the, our broader understanding of and field and kind of, you know, took that and, and ran with it. So I actually spent, you know, stepped away from teaching for quite a while. And while I've dabbled in it, most of my work, uh, was really focused on, on doing research. 
I'll pause there for a minute because I've talked quite a bit. Great. No, that's it, a wonderful narrative of your of your history. I mean, it's just really interesting to hear how you construct the links between the different things and activities that you've been a part of. Yeah, it's it's cool how you how you have those the, the different interdisciplinary backgrounds. I think and how and how you see how that's shaped and you become aware of how that's shaped <clears throat> your thinking up until now. And I'd be interested in what was the if you're saying that you, you have this need for a strong question and a strong passion in your PhD, what was that question for you in the PhD? And then how did that lead to then the position that you currently have? Yeah, great, great question. So in, in, when I first started my PhD, I was still trying to find, you know, I did a lot of exploration of, of I would say at a higher level was what was what was the domain? What was kind of the, the community of, of practice or, or suite of questions that I was interested in? And as I was kind of explaining my narrative, it was coming out of, you know, I had spent a lot of time uh, <clears throat> doing field education. And so originally I thought, oh, my, you know, I'm interested in a question that's around like sustainability ed education, you know, about praxis and, and thinking about theory around uh, around teaching and learning and living in learning environments. Uh, but then I realized, well, I want to be a practitioner in that. I don't want to be a scholar in that. Or I, you know, I'm not as, I wasn't, those were not the questions that were going to drive me. I also, um, you know, didn't imagine myself being, say, a sustainability officer at a, at a university or, uh, you know, I was trying to imagine where do I want to go with this work and, and what was kind of, what did I want my primary focus to be? And it was, it was through that and, and through some, um, some readings early on that I was exposed to some of the work that, uh, Orion Bowden and colleagues had been doing asking questions about the role of social networks. And that was kind of, um, blended with also, uh, coming across, uh, work, uh, done by Derek Armitage and other colleagues around social learning and the importance of social learning in the context of, uh, natural resource management. And so it was, you know, I, I saw these clear connections of this, you know, when I was thinking about my background and interest in in learning in kind of an uh, an educational setting versus this kind of informal setting and the importance of social learning uh, really spoke to me, as well as the kinds of questions and kind of the analytical approach of, of studying social networks. It, for some reason, it was like I saw a network and the kinds of questions I was like, oh, this, this really speaks to me in terms of uh, how you could really start to ask some some interesting questions about how actors are interacting and how that might lead to different kinds of outcomes. And so that that's really what what ended up kind of setting me on this trajectory to spend the past oh, um, six or seven years really starting to dive into uh, and better understand uh, both what contributes to the formation of social networks because a lot of work has said, okay, you know, social cohesion is important. Well, what leads to social cohesion then? If we're saying that that's important for particular outcomes, um, as well as, you know, asking questions of, you know, how do different kinds of uh, social networks across different communities, do those result in different kinds of outcomes? So when you have strong social cohesion uh, and social capital, does that lead to, to particular um, social or, uh, environmental outcomes. And that really is what I ended up kind of really focusing on. And as I was kind of, 
uh, immersed in that, uh, that field. Uh, things were progressing and I've been doing a, quite a bit of work. All my field work was based down in, uh, the Caribbean and particularly in Jamaica, looking at, uh, small scale fisheries and in the con and community based conservation where you had these, uh, co-management arrangements between the state and a local either NGO or fishermen's cooperative that had set up a partnership to manage a no-take area. And so I was really interested in, in thinking about these social ties uh, at many different levels. You could think about them at kind of the, at the national level because you had over 13 different um, marine reserves set up. And so you could think about the actors that are involved on this national landscape who uh, work for these NGOs and interact with universities, international NGOs who are providing aid or perhaps research, uh, government agencies. Uh, but then at the same time, you could be asking questions at a much finer scale about the social relationship among the individual fishermen who once fished in this area and now are fishing on the periphery of it. And kind of the rules and norms and behaviors among those fishermen is going to have a huge impact. Right. If we think about the the premise of a no take area, it's one of the things that's going to be important is that people don't fish there or, or and along with that is thinking about the importance of uh, monitoring uh, each other's behavior to make sure that people, others, uh, resource users, other fishers uh, follow the rules. So I was really interested in trying to unpack some of these other questions around what can we glean from thinking about the social ties, thinking about communication patterns and how those help us uh, to potentially understand uh, these these bigger questions that have been asked uh, across a number of resource contexts, but kind of unpacking them from this kind of relational uh, perspective. And it was through all that work that then uh, thinking about where the field was going and the kinds of questions that were being asked and you know, taking this network approach, and I guess one thing I'll say when I think about this network approach, I think of it as as kind of having three aspects to it. There's, you know, it's it's a conceptual model, it's a set of theoretical assumptions, and then it's also a methodological toolbox. And so when you take it from that standpoint, it both it helps you to understand broadly the the diversity of ways you could potentially apply it but also at the same time requires you to be more, much more explicit about, well, why are you taking this approach, right? So what, what theory are you linking it to? What, what kinds of questions are you trying to ask? And then that can help you better, better identify, well, what are the best, uh, methods to use? And when you then think about this kind of conceptual model, these theoretical assumptions and methodological toolbox and, you can ask a diversity of questions uh, with regards to the structural attributes and, and features of these networks. And those can give you insights on particular processes and practices like collaboration, which is what some of my early, uh, earliest work was on, uh, and communication patterns. Or you can ask questions about particular actor roles, thinking about the role of bridging organizations or leadership uh, or boundary spanners. Or you can ask questions related to kind of these broader social attributes, right? The social capital or trust uh, or social memory. Um, and as I was finishing up my, my PhD, there was some early work uh, being done uh, pushing this kind of network perspective uh, beyond just looking at social networks to thinking about kind of these these coupled 
social ecological networks. And uh, doing work on small scale fisheries, uh, I, it immediately jumped out at me that there was this opportunity to to potentially leverage uh, data that already existed around um, uh, food webs and thinking about the, the species that fishermen target. Uh, and had, you know, when I had done my work, uh, my research down in Jamaica, uh, had asked uh, individual fishermen about, uh, you know, what they were targeting. So from a conceptual model, oh, it was it was becoming clear, wow, we have this, you know, this network of individual fishermen who have then ties to different species they target. And then those species are interacting with another, with one another through, through a food web, uh, and through these different kind of trophic interactions. And so, um, that led me down the path to propose work that landed me at a, um, a place called the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center, which is, uh, funded by the National Science Foundation, uh, uh, based at the University of Maryland, but is located in Annapolis, Maryland. And, uh, what, socio-environmental synthesis center uh, supports and promotes is data-driven synthesis. And so I was in a place and I proposed work where I had uh, kind of this, what I like to think of as our, our artisanal data, uh, this kind of small batch data of a, a handful of social networks among individual fishermen. And, and I then had uh, ties uh, between those fishermen and the species that they targeted and and then was able to pull in there had been some published food web networks that I could then align with those uh, species that were targeted and not on target species and had proposed to to do some work uh, trying to explore some of the kind of emerging methodological frontiers of uh, network analysis and so I think that's a really great example where we can where sometimes the conceptual model can advance faster than, say, the methodological toolbox and or the theoretical uh, toolbox as well, if you will, is, uh, you know, when I when I think about some of the earlier work and even some of the recent work I've done, there's so much just looking at social networks where you can there's a there's a there's a lot of contributions to be made in the natural resource management and governance literature. And I say that because. So much of the work that's been done prior around social networks and kind of this like uh, meso theory, if you will, you know, questions around social capital or knowledge exchange or collaboration has been done in different in other empirical settings, uh, whether it's in uh, education settings or more kind of economic settings or organizations. So what does it look like to take this theory that's been built based on a different empirical setting? And, and try to test whether that holds up. Does that hold up in, uh, natural resource governance settings? And as we know, there's lots of heterogeneity. We can think about different kinds of natural resource settings, uh, across, you know, fisheries and forestry, agriculture. And even within them, even within those, we can then think about the, the, uh, diversity of, you know, how formalized or not are the governance arrangements and the importance of uh, informal rules and norms. And so just from looking at social networks, there's still so much work that can be done. As you move into the kind of the realm of social ecological networks, it's while that's kind of 
you know, the, the frontier of where work is being done now, it, we're still trying to develop the methodological toolbox to do that. And also the appropriate theory. What is, what is the appropriate theory? What kinds of questions are we asking and how are we contributing, uh, to that theory? And so that's ended up, uh, I ended up spending two years at, uh, at Sasink, um, starting to ask some questions in that domain and, uh, kind of working with a broader community of, of scholars who have really been trying to, to push that, uh, push that realm. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot there. Um, one of the things that I've been interested in is this trade-off with a network analysis where you have this inherently reductionistic approach to understanding a rather complex system. And I think you brought up a good point there where that actually forces you to be specific about how you define what you're looking at within the network, your unit of analysis, and what those nodes and edges in the network might be. And I'm also thinking in some projects we have going on, and it seems that it's more popular now within the literature, is this this idea of using network analysis to better understand social ecological systems or social ecological network analysis, if you want to say it like this. And I'm interested in, in where you see those main challenges are in bringing together, make, for example, defining the different nodes um, across a social and ecological domain um, and the types of connections which are there. And then ultimately... You know, a lot of the, the data which already exists and a lot of the methodologies for collecting that data within the two realms, the social and the ecological, say, for example, on fishers and their livelihoods and incomes uh, versus, you know, species compositions and catch data. How do we integrate those theoretically? Do you do you find any sort of or what is your impression of the, the benefits that using network analysis can give to social ecological systems analysis? Ooh, yeah, that's a really great question, Steph. Um, and, you know, it, it, I can't help but think about some of the work I was uh, involved with led by Jesse Salas uh, that, that uh, we did a review of papers that ecological network approach and tried to, or at least that's what they said they were doing in various kinds of ways. And, and that really brought to light a number of these uh, questions and concerns you raise, because as soon as you start moving into uh, even just thinking about this kind of, if you were to imagine kind of visually this, this two layered network, it's really comprised of three networks. You have a, a network of ties between social actors and entities. You have this some sort of ecological network that has its connections. And then you have some sort of connection between the two. Uh, that, so that would be like a third network. And, and again, this is, Ed, I will be the first to say that's just one way to conceptualize what a social ecological network is as thinking about this kind of like multi-level network. When you take it from that standpoint, even then it helps provide some clarity in recognizing the inherent challenge that there are those ties mean very different things. A, a trophic interaction between two fish species means something very different than a communication tie between to social actors. And so from that standpoint, what it, for, for me, it, I think that's where it then becomes really challenging and requires an even added, um, level of, of nuance and scrutiny about, well, why are you doing this? And do you have the right methods and theory for the kinds of questions you're asking? Perhaps. It works well from a conceptual standpoint to, to imagine this network. But then you might think about how you ask 
a, a, a different question. You, you're not treating the network in its entire. You don't need to treat the network it's in, in, in its entirety and say, okay, I want to understand something about the overall structure of all of these ties together. Maybe what you're doing is you're you're subsetting them, and that's giving you different kinds of insights. And then you can think about how those might be interacting with one another, right? So I think about uh, work I was just involved with. Uh, with, uh, Phil Stanichenko, uh, who we were, uh, fellows together at Sasink and Orion Bowden. And we were looking at, we started with this kind of conceptual model of, uh, fishermen, the species they target and how those species interacted. In the end, what we focused on was actually only two of those networks. So it was the network of social ties and then the species that they target. And so using uh, a Bayesian belief network uh, as the kind of analytical tool and the approach, we ask the question, well, do social ties help to explain what species individual fishermen target, right? So you think about this idea of like social influence and where you're getting your information from of what you're choosing. And so we started with this, this conceptual model, but then we subset it, said, okay, as a starting point, we're just interested in how might social ties help to explain the suite of species that that individual fishermen target? But you could imagine, you could then take that another step and say, okay, once we, and what we found was indeed it, it, it does. And so now you say, okay, well, that helps to understand what species are targeted. Okay, now we can start asking a set of questions about the ecological network then. Or, or you could take it in two directions. You could, you could say, okay, that's helpful because if we want to imagine changing some sort of, uh, putting a limit on a particular species, let's say, you know, parrotfish across the Caribbean, really critical, uh, for the health of coral reefs, uh, but highly, uh, being highly fished in a number of countries. Uh, so let's say we wanted to put a ban on that. Okay. This, this could help us understand thinking about kind of the social dynamics and how we might, um, implement or leverage social ties as a way to get uptake or uh, kind of shift some behaviors. At the same time, we could say, okay, maybe we don't know what species uh, we're interested in putting a, a ban on. Maybe instead, we we want to think about the, the broader network of uh, the trophic interactions, and we could identify particular species uh, that might be central to the functioning of that, that trophic network that play, uh, that play a central role. And then we could see, you know, run different scenarios just on the ecological network and, and, and then think about, well, how does that target align those different, that suite of kind of fish that an individual targets? How do those align with these particular, you know, uh, species that are of critical importance? And if we were to wanted to shift pressure, or, you know, is there, might there be some sort of cascade, right? So now we put a ban on, um, parrotfish. Is there a way we could potentially, uh, that just then shifts pressure to another species and has unintended consequences. And because we have that trophic network, we could then think about how that plays out. So now you start to imagine the importance of having this broader methodological toolbox to think about these different sets of interactions. So you start from this conceptual model and then you're thinking about these different assumptions you're making and you're thinking clearly about what are the most appropriate ties between the different entities and then how you might then subset these, these 
different networks based on your sets of questions. Yeah. Well, as you said, there's a lot here. This is really great. Um, so a couple questions, Stephen. Um, <clears throat> you, you mentioned the relationship between conceptual development, empirical methods, and theoretical development. It occurs to me that this is a struggle that environmental social science has generally, is that there's frequently a lot of methodological development, conceptual development, um, thought pieces about how we could do things. And then there's another step to actually do those things. But then there's even another step to do those things in theoretically motiv well-motivated ways. And I think a lot of what we see in environmental social science and social ecological system research, particularly the observational kind, which is the kind that um, a lot of us do, ends up um, involving a lot of kind of ad hoc theorizing and I don't say mm -hmm. that dismissively. Yeah, I think there's a role for that. But I, I struggle a lot of the time with um, where where our theories um, come from and how how well we are enacting some version of the maybe hypothetical deductive model of science. Do we have this iterative relationship between theory and data within the social network realm and environmental science mm -hmm. more broadly? I mean, I think I mean something else that I I. I thought about when you were talking earlier, Stephen, about what I would call your origin story is, I mean, you display a lot of articulate self-awareness, which I really appreciated. And it reminds me of something that Stephen, um, that Stefan said, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to mess that up constantly for the next half an hour. Um, is, you know, this in, in social science, the subject is the object. And mm. so there is this unique position that social scientists have in that we're always collecting data about what it means to be a human all the time. And we're always, a part of our brains is always doing some sense making um, and theorizing. Like we're, we're like ad hoc theorizing all the time, constantly, when we're, when we, and a lot of the times we do it wrong, which is like why it's complicated to be a human. We, we do it wrong all the time, which is where the whole rationality discourse comes in. So I guess one question, you know, to tie this together, what role do you see, you know, what we could call self-awareness, emotional intelligence playing in social science? And how does that relate to this challenge I mentioned earlier about how a lot of our work can feel under-theorized, where we kind of are doing some sense-making, frankly. You know, if, I mean, you'll see a lot of uh, regression analyses where, you know, we have some reasons to think that a beta coefficient would be up or down, etc., but then if the model shifts a lot, we essentially do a separate sense-making process. Mm. Um, and I think that happens a lot. I think that's actually set rather standard in the field when you have like these large-end data sets and you're, you've, you're, you're, you're basically being driven by psychological intuition a lot of the time. Mm. And I think that's potentially fine, but, but under-formalized uh, and under-standardized. So, so I'm going to throw all that at you. <laughs> And we'll, <laughs> and we'll see where we, I think these are actually like really important concepts. I wonder whether, you know, folks in anthropology through their reflexive turn in the last several decades, thinking about their own positions have moved forward farther than we have actually on this. That's my guess. Yeah. Wow. There was, uh, there's a lot there to, uh, a lot of different connections, um, and, and ideas that you've put forward, Michael, that, I that I'll, uh, I'll do my best to try to, let's start uh, with a small bite together. Yes, well, let's start with a small bite. So, 
in some regards, you, um, I almost think about this. I couldn't help you. You were kind of focusing it on the, on the, on the micro level and on the individual researcher. But then I couldn't help but think about all these other processes that are at play more broadly. If you want to talk about these broader social structures within academia or research in terms of what is, what are the contributions that, that are valued? You know, and, and I, I can't help but think about, you know, there's, there's kind of some realms of environmental social science where there it's just, it's promoting the development of, of new frameworks, right? So you just have this plethora of frameworks. And does that really help us to refine, to refine theory? Oh, you're preaching to the choir right now, man. I, I think you can throw a rock at, you know, an environmental studies journal and you'll hit a, a paper about a new framework as if all we need to do is think about things a little so, more differently with a new box and arrow. So you have that. Then I think you have um, uh, the other piece I would put in there that I think is at play that's that's much larger than any one of us individuals is how theory is perceived, received, received and talked about. It's like, are we talking about big T theory? And some sociologists and some social sciences, when they talk about theory, they're ter- talking about like Marx and Durkheim. We're talking about like meso or micro theory. And yeah. one, from, from my standpoint, immersing myself in the, not just social network as an analytical tool, but thinking about it as this conceptual model and theoretical assumptions has really opened my eyes to what I would, what I would note and highlight is the diversity of kind of meso or micro theories within that field alone. So there's, there's, so, okay. So, so that's the second piece. Then the, Right. So do, depending on the places you're in, do we privilege big T theory over kind of more kind of micro meso theory? Then the third piece I would put in there is this, this push for, you know, big new bold ideas and therefore to do the work to refine a particular idea in a, in a, in a small way. Right. And so a lot of my work is, is case study based. And, uh, there was, there's two papers, uh, that I was involved with, um, recently that at the end, when I look back at them, say, wow, this was like, we, we bit off a small chunk, but it was both theoretically motivated and empirically motivated. That's the other thing I would, I would highlight. And I've been thinking a lot about lately is, Within the kind of environmental social sciences, we're using this very broadly, but you find a lot of papers where the motivation for it, they'll say the literature says X or, or Y, but they don't actually clarify whether they're talking about, well, was that empirically shown or is theory generally telling us this? Like, you know, we, we, we you know, like, what is it exactly? And, and so one of the pieces we did, and this is coming back to thinking about the kind of unpacking more subtle aspects of work that's been done. So one, we were looking at uh, this question of social cohesion, community cohesion, right? In the natural resource mm-hmm. management literature, governance literature, we talk about how important social cohesion is as a precondition for thinking about uh, adhering to, you know, establishment of rules and norms and social monitoring. Well, you know, our question was, what leads to community cohesion, right? Like, what right. are the antecedents to that? What are the 
processes, particularly from a social relational, that are going to lead to the ties that result in this emergent, this emergent social structure that we would then define as being, you know, community cohesion. And so there, it's then taking this nuanced approach to thinking about social networks as your, your, you know, are you thinking about it as the dependent variable or the independent variable? That's another right. thing that, that hasn't always been clear in the literature. People are doing a much better job of that. So in our case, we said, okay, well, we're going to take, we have this emergent structure. What is leading to that emergent structure? What is driving those ties? Is it about a single leader or a set of leaders? And they happen to have a high number of ties and that really shapes it. Is it about their geographic proximity? So is it having a tie with another fisherman from the same landing site versus another landing site? Or is it about the gear type you use? And so each one of those choices, we could link to all these kind of micro theories about why those should or may be an an explanation for having a tie. But then when we look at those together, how do those then help to explain this kind of emergent structure? So here we just kind of bit off this very small piece to unpack it a bit deeper and try and provide some strong, you know, theoretically motivated and strong empirical evidence. The yeah. other one was we're, we're asking similarly, and we think about, you know, um, Lynn's work on the design principles and your work on the design principles, the importance of social monitoring, right? Social monitoring is, is a critic, is a, is a, is a precondition for, uh, successful outcomes. Well, what what leads to social monitoring and so this got into uh you know this this collaboration evolved with uh uh you know uh, a, a good colleague and friend of yours michael with graham epstein and and mine and we oh, got that guy this, yeah that guy about um you know an institutional lens would say mm. oh you know things like participation in uh the establishment of the rules or the planning of the yeah. rules that's mm-hmm. going to be critical you know, and my lens was, well, the importance of social relations. And so there we said, oh, okay, let's test those. Let's look at whether, you know, is it, is it one? Is it the importance of participating in, in the planning for the establishment of a protected area, which would be this kind of institutional role, the importance of the kind of the institutions that we, and forums that we participate in, or is it about social ties? And so in our case, we were looking at do, if, if, uh, fishermen have a tie to, uh, what would be a warden or someone who is in a place of power. Um, is that a better predictor? Does that help to explain the extent to whether they would report, uh, illegal fishing? Right. So there we then okay. our outcome that we're interested in was social model. And we were saying, well, do social ties matter or does participation in, you know, planning? matter and establishment of rules. So again, thinking about how we motivated our choice for those two uh, pieces to look at that hadn't really been fully explored and unpacked against that. So that's why, you know, I, I look back at those and it's like, they were just such, you know, they're, they're not necessarily big and flashy, but they, they really help us in very concrete ways do yeah. better with thinking about kind of being theoretically and empirically motivated well when you talk about where does social monitoring come from I, I, I think of the traditional for me the traditional institutional framing of that is resolving a second order collective action problem in a cpr context 
Like it's all well and good to say, well, we need the norms and rules to help us resolve this collective action problem posed by this shared commons, but who's actually going to develop those and enforce those? Mm. I mean, something else that I, I liked your um, the way you distinguish between thinking about the network as an independent versus a dependent variable. There's a literature on community development that I don't know terribly well, but there's an interesting article. It's got two authors. Um, Frank Van Lerhoven is one of them who essentially asked this question. Like, could the, could the literature on the commons and the literature on community development learn from each other? Because they essentially just point the causal arrow in different directions. One points it from, like, two communities and their development and their relations. The other one points it away. And I mean, your work to me is, is a, actually quite a natural, nice extension of what he was hoping that some of us would start to do. So I have a, um, I have a question about social network analysis generally. I mean, I feel like the case for looking at social ties has only become stronger in the last, however, you know, you could pick, I could say five, 10, 15, 20 years. I think the statement is true for all of them. That social influence is is deeply important for humans, and that's just being proven over and over again. Again, I think it's being proven by our own emotional intelligence and individual level sense making. We're all aware of how nested we all are in social systems, right? But if people around you are overweight, you're more likely to be overweight. If people around you are smoking, you're more likely to be smoking. Suicide is contagious. Yeah. Like all of these, yeah. there's there's social contagion is is a yeah. radical part of humanity. So, I mean, I, a question that I have for you is, because my impression is that within environmental social science, and that was something else, I'm in, you know, I'm sad I had to leave in 10 minutes because we could go on for, for the whole day. Um, you know, I was also interested that you called yourself an environmental social scientist, uh, Stephen, because that's mostly what I call myself as well. And I think Stefan is, yeah, so here we are. So... Um, my impression in the literature is that most of the social network analyses are applied in the con in the kind of context where you're applying them, where I have applied them successfully and unsuccessfully is a similar context, small scale phishing. And, you know, when you look at the work of Orian Boyden and, and other folks, Beatrice Corona, um, my impression is that if you do like a meta analysis of where SNA is applied, it's largely in like phishing. It's largely in small scale systems, not exclusively, because I know that folks like, I mean, Mark Lubell has been involved in some stuff, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of folks looking at like larger scale watersheds where the actors are not individuals, but they're organizations. Um, what's yep. a, what's what's the reason to not do it? Maybe that's the most like polemical way I can phrase it. Like, what are the limitations here that that mean that might mean for someone like, well, this is actually not for you, even though social networks are everywhere and social influence is ubiquitously important. Um, it might be more difficult for you to do it here. And just to sneak in the other question, because I, I want to make sure I get to it. <laughs> What is your favorite social network analysis package and what is one that you don't like and why? So I'm just going to throw it all out there. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. oh, I mean, man. the last one, because right, I've struggled. Like, I think a lot of people struggle. Like, oh, I want to do social network analysis, but everything looks like it's from like the mid 90s. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of the stuff that's being done in R now is the is the is uh, is really great. Uh, okay. But there's uh, there when you get into, you know, it has a steeper learning curve uh, to using it. Uh, but once you do, um, I think it's yeah, it doesn't look like it's from the 90s. Uh, so that's why right. Like when I think back to, you know, when I first started, uh, I used UCI net 
Um, right. it, it, it had some very nice built-in features uh, in terms of doing some calculations and your ability to create visuals. Uh, but then, you know, it has its limitations. Yes, it looks like it's from the 90s. Uh, and so a lot is being done in R. But then that, uh, when you start moving into the R environment, then there's, uh, it, depending on what kind of uh, analysis you're trying to do, when it gets into this realm of exponential random graph models, there's packages in R. And those have certain kind of parameters and configurations that have built, have already been built in. And there's others that are kind of growing the library. This is where we get into the kind of that methodological slash theoretical interaction, right? It, it's been really interesting starting to collaborate with folks, uh, having done a little bit of exponential random graph modeling and trying to move into this kind of like multi-level world is where theory is driving the methods in some cases in, in trying to say, Oh, could we put in these other, these other kind of structures, these, these particular kinds of triangles, uh, that where you're, or you're not just talking about a triangle in terms of three connections between actors, but there's some sort of attribute that's defining each of those. And so it's a particular combination of, of ties or actors. Um, because the number of those different various combinations is so massive that when we started, we started with the empirical settings that we were working with. And now that we're taking these tools and applying them to new empirical settings, that is, you know, trying to study social ecological networks, it's pushing the the development of those particular methodological approaches further. Um, so that seems like, well, I don't know if I think this, I'm going to see whether I think it by saying it. I mean, it seems... Like that's a healthier, I mean, I feel like we worry a lot about methods driving, wait, we worry a lot about methods driving theory where it's everyone's got like a new methodological hammer and then we're like looking around. My yeah. initial response is to think, well, it's actually nice to hear that theory might drive some methods that we've got some theories and let's figure out how to test them. That's yeah, absolutely. I, I think it, I think it, um, I think there's a lot out there to, to kind of dig into a bit more to think about do, how often do we find that and, or, or yeah. kind of. You know, how can you have that, that healthy relationship? The, the other question you were asking was related to why, why not use it? Um, I guess from that standpoint, it, for me, it's not a question of why not use it, but, but why use it? What's your, what's your, what's your motivating question? Mm -hmm. And how is taking this particular approach helping you to answer or understand that question, right? And so, as you noted, there's, there's um, people are looking at, you know, in that if you were to take environmental governance as kind of the highest level and, and thinking broadly about the kinds of questions people are asking, within environmental governance, there's people looking at global networks of actors. When you think about things like negotiations around the IPCC, um, or things like emerging threats and diseases. Um, you know, I can't, I can't help but think about some of the work that like Victor Galaz has done, right? Thinking about the role of networks and kind of the global governance. And then you have those who work on questions about networks of actors when it comes to, uh, kind of regional scales that might be like watersheds or basins and how like the work you mentioned that like Mark LaBelle uh, was involved in or, and 
you you then find those like in the in the public administration and the political science there there are sets of questions that they're asking and uh the theory that they're drawing on is going to be slightly different than what's being applied and used in say these more intimate um natural resource use settings where you're looking sure. at individual communities per se but there's also a lot of opportunity for um, cross-pollination between those. And so that's where I think, and, and that's why I think is one of the things that's um, so interesting and exciting about, about the field, but also the importance of being well-versed is just because a network was done at one particular scale and, you know, how do you transfer that? How do you, you know, are you asking the right set of questions kind of from a theoretical standpoint? Are you measuring or capturing or thinking about the network in the most appropriate way in terms of how you're defining your ed's and edges and nodes? And it right. might make sense in one context to understand, you know, these kind of uh, actors at an organizational level that are interacting versus it's going to look different than when you're asking questions about individuals and their, their you know, individual ties they have to other fishermen or to others who um are you know in, in you know farming you know neighboring neighboring farms think yeah, about okay practices of sustainable you know application of you know pest management so steven uh, i think i have time for one more question before i gotta run off i mean so what is would you say the most challenging aspect of doing a social network analysis at any particular stage? Is it actually collecting enough data about a community to make sure you can characterize the network? Is it deciding um, about actually at the measurement stage and thinking about like the instrument you'll use to populate the nodes and links? Is it learning R? Like what was what's the thing that's been trickiest for you? Oh, uh, great question. I think there's, there's all of, there's a number of different kind of, um, points where it, you can go in, you can be naive. So you can, you can start playing around with some of these kind of, uh, social network tools and you think, oh, this is, uh, this is great. This is easy. Okay. All I have to do is ask kind of a handful of questions. Uh, so I, I, what I would argue, and I think is probably there's, there's two critical points that I think can be, can be particularly challenging, but I would say the one that is most critical and can be, uh, the, the one that is most critical is thinking about the actual instrument you develop. Think about the questions you ask and because, and, and, and this, there's a fine line because you can easily get carried away and say, Oh, I want to ask about so many different kinds of ties oh, and yeah. so many different kinds of attributes. And as you know, with any survey design or questionnaire, you have to think about your participants that you're, that you're working with interviewing that are giving you your time. Um, that then, might not really reveal anything. Right. And so it's, how do you, how do you, how do you choose a, a subset or what you believe 
are rather than taking this approach like a natural scientist, like let's ask as many questions as we can, uh, maybe not natural scientists, but like this idea like, oh, you never know what we would want to analyze afterwards. But it's, it's going back to that. Well, what are your sets of questions you're trying to ask? And where do you think what are the theories you're trying to help explain as a way to guide what it is you're looking to ask? Because you could then come back uh, from the field and have your data and realize, well, did you actually ask the questions? If you were asking about ties, uh, can you make an argument about how that tie relates to a particular social process that you're you're interested in? Can it be used as a proxy? That's well put. Okay. Okay. So this is the final, final question. I'll be late to my next meeting. Uh, do you think, is there any like repository anywhere or would it help if there is one of uh, network instruments, like questionnaires, surveys designed to get at this? Is yeah, there a place to the, go to like get examples? There is not yet. And I remember struggling with that uh, when I... Uh, first started my PhD, particularly because it was also at a time when publication norms didn't require you to include your uh, questionnaire or survey instrument as a, a supplementary material, which, which is becoming more common now. And so I remember, uh, you know, scouring the literature for any example where they actually said, this is the question we asked in the field. Because that's right. the other thing. You, even now, you don't always get a sense of what, you know, when you think about, um, you know, best practices in for, for writing um, papers, it's not always clear. What was the actual question you asked right. to try to understand the relationship between them? Like, what was the premise of the tie? And so I came up with, a um, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, probably got, I don't know, six to 12 examples that I came across, but it was, it, it really took kind of scouring the literature to find those examples. Um, this is not, this is a, this is something that's been talked about within the community. Um, and I know there are some folks who are, um, trying to make some headway on this to think to recognizing, especially if we want to move towards more comparative work, uh, so that individuals who are going and, and collecting data could then compare their findings for those from work that's already been done, uh, it's going to be critical that we're asking the same kinds of questions. Yes, I'm waving my hands frantically in agreement. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm sorry, I got to go. Um, Stephen, it's been really great. I look forward to hearing the rest of what you all talk about when we publish this podcast episode. All right. Thanks so much, Michael. Great to uh, see you and uh, chat with you again. Yeah, so one, one follow-up question which might lead... Oh, I hope it it somewhat connects to this this methodological problem or the, this this idea where it's it's difficult to develop the instrument in social network network analysis, and that makes me think about the role of qualitative data in that process. Mm -hmm. And you, I know you have a paper out uh, with a, with a quite a large group of, of folks um, in nature sustainability. It's called qualitative data sharing and synthesis for sustainability science, and. You know, maybe that's a nice way to think about some of the challenges with qualitative data instrument development and how we share and make that data comparable with a network example. I don't know if that's useful for you to think about it like that, but maybe first we can think, you know, how is qualitative data, raw data used in network analysis? I would assume that there has to be then some sort of 
transformation process of that raw data into some sort of quantitative dimension uh, to attribute that to node or edge attributes. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about in general the the nature of that paper and some of the challenges for sharing qualitative data in general. Uh, fantastic. That sounds that sounds great. So uh, I think you you set the stage well for for me when I think about the doing uh, and applying a social relational approach to asking questions and particularly in the context of 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 working in and with communities the there's only so much that can be captured in uh, kind of this quantitative structural format of when you think about when you think about a network diagram and the ties that connect the nodes there's so much potentially behind that some can be quantified you could quantify uh you know how many times do these two individuals communicate in a given month right and and if you have you could ask someone that uh so if it's you know uh, two different resource managers uh you could ask about the frequency of uh, their their interactions uh and then that could be quantified say in the 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 strength of that actual tie uh or maybe you happen to have access to data that actually shows um email or you know number of times that are emailed or you know if you work at an organization um you know people are able to get access to you know other kinds of information that can give you a sense of like uh how strong that tie is uh but there's also something to be said about the quality of those particular ties that you mm. are is going to be much harder to capture and to quantify and it's those the qualities of those ties that that comes out uh when conducting the questionnaire uh in in our case when we were doing this work we were interviewing fishermen we were interviewing uh resource managers we were interviewing um you know folks who worked for ngos and for different government agencies and so while you're asking these very specific questions about ties there's all these other stories and, and aspects that come up oh about when they met or about you know yeah i'll just call up the phone for them or they might give you they might be able to uh not only tell you uh, about how frequent or infrequent they talk, but you, you, you might get a sense that there's a bit of tension in that relationship. So there's this other, um, quality that gets picked up that helps with, with understanding the nature of those ties. Or I would also add that, and so in, in some of, in some of my work, I, like, I think that's so critical to have that kind of, qualitative context that helps to potentially add um, depth to the in, the interpretation of, of what you're seeing in the actual network and what your you know your your analysis is showing you if you see a particular you know subgroup emerge or some fragmentation uh, within the network uh, there there might be things that come out in the interviews or I would also add some of that other you know for me some of the other uh, qualitative uh, data and insights that were so critical came through participant observation and through field notes that I had drafted. And 
when I think about the most recent paper we had that took a very kind of, uh, you know, a particularly quantitative, highly analytical and kind of emerging uh, methodological approach using Bayesian belief networks, the the importance of having that that ethnographic data and perspective of being in the field with these fishermen out on the water, at the beach, helped with the interpretation, helped with making sure we were asking the right question of the of the data and how we so it's like both in the framing of the question the framing of how we're actually applying this this quantitative analytical tool and how we're interpreting it like that was that was essential and and that's hard to articulate in a paper right it's it, that that um it, it, it's not always clear how critical or important that is um and so uh you know for me i think you know, when you take a social relational network approach, there's this methodological toolbox. And I think it's this multi-method approach that adds this, this incredible kind of richness to, to the work. Yeah, that's a, that's a similar impression that I've had in, in, at least in one of my cases doing network analysis, that the qualitative surrounding data helps me really interpret that what we're showing in the network is actually meaningful in the case. It's actually the right questions to be yeah. asking within that. And if, if that's not only for my own comfort, <laughs> it is also useful, uh, but somehow difficult to explain and interpret that qualitative data alongside uh, the more quantitative or visualizations that you have in network analysis. It, it, I think that leads nicely into some of the challenges that you all outline in this nature sustainability paper. I think one nice thing about that is that you you kind of show, or you in the introduction, you're showing that there's different types of qualitative data beyond the text, and I think that that doesn't get enough attention. Things like photographs and and artwork and video and music and maps, um, and also text from many different types of sources, journalistic policy documents and and social media. Uh, it really outlines the broad spectrum of qualitative uh, data which is out there and how it can be useful. And I also I also thought it was nice how you all outlined, I, I hope I'm summarizing this right, it was about three different challenges uh, around qualitative data and, and the sharing of qualitative data and the reuse of qualitative data um, in synthesis research, and particularly if we think about comparative research across different cases. And, you know, the first one was epistemological and how the actual origin of those data and how they were created and, and understanding that process. And, and that might not always be transparent or obvious uh, when you're coming at it from a secondary perspective. And, and the other one was ethical um, and the types of questions that we have with, with sharing human data and, and very much personal data in some cases as we sit with uh, often in the collection of qualitative data in people's homes and, and talk about their lives. And yeah, this, then there's this practical repository aspect, which we talked about before in Michael's question. And, and I, I think the paper nicely outlines that and, and provides a, a good reference for us who are starting to think about some of these challenges. And I'm, I'm interested to hear what your summary is and, and case for qualitative data. And that, that's a bit in the title of the paper that it can really add some value to sustainability science. And, and I think also with environmental social science, environmental science in general. And, you know, what's, what's really the case there? Uh, I think you gave a good example of network analysis, but, uh, what else? What else is there that we're not thinking about? Yeah, abs absolutely. So, 
I'll start a bit in terms of uh, the motivation for for this this paper and and project because I think it helps to it, it responds to you know what what you appreciated was how diverse we treated and and tried to capture the the breadth and depth of qualitative data. So this was you know I, as I had mentioned I spent uh, two years based at the National Associate Environmental Synthesis Center. Um, as a as a postdoctoral research fellow there, and I was surrounded by a lot of very quantitatively based folks. There was a few folks who were uh, trained as uh, you know critical geographers and uh, demographers and sociologists, and so some who use qualitative qualitative data. But being in a place that's about uh, a center where the focus is on data driven synthesis, it it really got me thinking about. Well, where is, you know, what is the place and the role of qualitative data and recognizing and, and kind of uh, having some conversations where you kept hearing, oh, well, you could, you know, kind of two things. One is there was always the, the barriers or the challenges that were brought up about why you shouldn't use, uh, be, be sharing qualitative data for reuse. And it's like, well, there must be ways we can get around that. So that challenged me to to uh, my my former colleague Crystal Jones and I to put our heads together and say, okay, what is the what is the breadth of individuals we need to think through this this and problematize, but not just problematize, but try to identify kind of the solutions or pathways. And so that's why we have such a you know such a uh, a, a big group of authors and collaborators who contributed to this because we not only had you know, diversity of environmental social scientists, um, environmental historians, people who use like um, archival, uh, you think about, you know, their, the way they interact and what they consider to be data or the materials. Uh, but then also folks who uh, work in kind of the whole spectrum around, around data and data sharing. So people who are intimately working with uh, qualitative and qualitative data repositories, or those who think about questions related to metadata. Or we had folks there who had um, backgrounds in applied ethics and were directors of institutional review boards. We had folks there who were editors uh, from journals who could bring that lens of thinking about, you know, the imperative for data sharing and the move towards open data. So the idea being is like, how do we think about all these different kind of move, moving parts? Because there's there's questions or concerns that come up when you when you break down kind of the the data life cycle. There's, there's all these different questions that come up that are so imperative. And so if you don't think through that entire data life cycle of when data is being collected, then whether or not or to what extent it can be reused is going to be more challenging. So it's like, how do we move upstream if our ultimate goal is, oh, we see the benefits and we'll talk about what those benefits are of, of using qualitative data in, in synthesis and to support sustainability science. Well, how do we think up, how do we look upstream in terms of what all the different moving parts are? And that's how we got to cluster around these, these three challenges around the epistemological, ethical, and practical challenges. By bringing folks who kind of think about these, the, these different spaces, uh, really helped us to tackle those. The other thing that motivated this was, as, as you pointed out, you were talking about the, the, the breadth and depth of, of qualitative data and, for me, I couldn't help but think of the number of people who potentially work with qualitative data but don't realize they're working with that, and 
what a huge benefit it would be if they were to share it. So I think about people who, um, you know, might have pulled together a collection of um, species recovery plans, you know, uh, endangered species recovery plans or management plans. You know, at, at their core, these are, you know, textual documents. And then they coded them and ran some sort of quantitative analysis to look at what preconditions led to some sort of outcome. But, you know, when we talk about qualitative data sharing, people immediately think to, oh, you're talking about interviews that were done. Wait a minute. Like, what about this amazing, somebody did a lot of work to track down all of these, you know, recovery plans. Somebody else might come to that and say, wow, I have some really cool ideas. Like, if you're willing to, like, share that collection of management plans, I might run some cool textual analysis or machine learning or, you know, that for me, it was also this idea of being based at a synthesis center, my mind was being kind of blown open in terms of the the number of different methods that could be applied. And so sometimes it's not till you put something out there and somebody from another field is like, oh, hey, this is we can ask some really cool questions with some new uh, new kind of tools that we're that we're developing. So that was another motivation was how do we not just talk to social scientists, but there's a lot of natural scientists who work with qualitative data and and might not think of it that way. Those who are using historical photographs think a lot of the work in um, in historical ecology draws on um, qualitative qualitative data, whether that be report logs from uh, whaling expeditions to uh, you know photographs of uh, recreational fishing. Uh, so it was really how do we speak to all researchers and scholars? you know, including those in the humanities to think about when they pull together these different collections beyond just interviews and transcripts, how those could potentially be of benefit to others to reuse. And then recognizing that there's a diversity of pathways in which those could be reused. That was the other thing that that was motivating this was that it's, you know, it's not just that you have to share your raw data. Maybe that's not appropriate for a number of different ethical and practical reasons, but it doesn't mean you can't share or make accessible parts of that for for others to to you know um, to spur collaborations and partnerships to advance and leverage that work that's already been done. So that's you know that's why in, in some regards I think that the figure that we we had in there was and the paper is kind of set up in a reverse order in that we 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 spent a lot of time talking about the motivation for why we should be sharing data, but then the rest of the paper kind of moves upstream to saying, okay, well, we made the case for why we should, uh, why we should be sharing it, which is, you know, we can think about its role in informing science, right? In terms of, uh, how that can help enhance understanding of spatio, spatial and temporal variability or around, uh, how it can inform kind of the underlying reasons for different uh, relationships that come out in, say, statistical analysis or more quantitative approaches. Uh, it can contribute to kind of measuring multidimensional dimensional concepts like equity and efficiency, efficacy. Um, it can also help us, you know, contribute to theory when we think about, uh, you know, qualitative data derived from many different cases. So we can start doing cross-case um, comparisons. I know that's something you know, you've talked about on previous uh, on previous podcasts uh, with with Michael and other guests 
so there's this whole realm just in terms of thinking about advancing science, advancing our general knowledge. Yet there's also a role for it in informing policy and how uh, it can help increase the evidence base for effective management and, and intervention strategies uh, by being able to point to not just uh, um, quantitative uh, studies and outcomes, but also there might be qualitative qualitative data may also feed into that uh, as well. And then lastly is thinking about informing practice. And, you know, those uh, resource users or uh, managers, uh, think about those practitioners and how uh, they incorporate qualitative data gathering into their approaches, increases the legitimacy and efficacy of their activities, and it can move towards supporting place-based responses, right? Contextualizing um, uh, solutions uh, that, you know, when we think about these big regional and global challenges, what are the, you know, place-based solutions and responses and how can it inform that? And then it's from there we kind of work after making the case. We then work through, you know, yeah, there, there are challenges. Let's, let's be upfront about that. And we know there's a diversity of them. But there's also, we, we, we then really end uh, and spend time talking about the, the pathways, right? So how can we enable qualitative data sharing? What does that look like? What are some things that we can be doing around, uh, with regards to like, what's the role for researchers? What's the role for funders? What's the role for research institutions? The idea of like, we try to think about this, like what's the, what's the data ecosystem? Where are the different actors involved? Um, and, you know, Michael's not here, but, you know, think about our, 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 our work in the commons. One of the, one of the collaborators on this, uh, does a lot of work around knowledge commons. So common pool resource theory and the knowledge commons. And that is, that is a huge aspect of thinking about, um, data sharing and one of the challenges. And when you think about motivation, the amount of time and energy as individuals we put into collecting that data and perhaps considering the value of that. What does it take to put that out there for the, the broader? How do you shift the norms, right? To think about sharing that, putting that as a, contributing it to a, as a public good. Um, so it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, this, this is a, 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 a paper and a project and a process that was just so rewarding and, and I learned so much along the process because of this diversity of, perspectives and individuals we brought together that really forced us to look at all of these little intricacies and aspects of it. Um, this just, you know, I, I feel like this paper sums up uh, kind of from a, a big picture standpoint, but there, there's so much more to be unpacked. And we have a, we have a white paper that we wrote as well uh, that we can link to in the, in the podcast uh, that, that dives into some of these, provides some more tools uh, and resources of points people to where they can be going. Um, and also in, in that paper, we have a really nice table, kind of a matrix that I think was one of the, uh, a really great outcome from this that in terms of a way to think about how we go about operationalizing this idea of, of qualitative data sharing that makes it more accessible and, and feasible and recognizing the diversity of ways it can happen. And, in, and this matrix kind of has, has two axes. One across the, across the top of the axes is thinking about this, this aspect of, um, 
levels of access, right? And this is common for, for any kind of data sharing, particularly of, of um, human subjects, right? Is it totally open? Is it restricted? Is it controlled? But then what we, one of the uh, insights that came out and during the, the workshop that, that led to this paper was somebody was thinking about work being done in remote sensing and how in the field of remote sensing, they think about levels of processing of that remote sensing data. And so that got us thinking about this idea of like, you know, uh, totally unprocessed being raw data, right? So that could be, that's like your raw transcript or the audio recording to, you know, say level four processing. So you go from zero to four, four being the final output. So it's really just the summary of, say, the thematic analysis of an interview with the methodology explained. Um, or in the context of a, like a public policy document, uh, it might just be a descriptive summary of the themes. So when you start thinking about this, this levels of processing and levels of access, and we, in that, in that, uh, um, in that white paper, we give a number of different examples. We walk through what's this look like for like an interview? What does this look like for a policy document? What does this look like for, say, a map or a photograph as a way to recognize there's going to be different conditions that, that are going to um, dictate to what extent you can you you can share in terms of questions of ethics from epistemological uh, concerns, what you're comfortable sharing. And so this helps provide some guidance on how you could actually go about doing this. And I think, so from my standpoint, that was really exciting because it's like, here's a pathway forward. In addition to thinking about the role that all these different actors play, how you know, we think about the policies that, that, uh, that journals have for data sharing and the need to both kind of support and encourage it, but also recognize and be open to the diversity of constraints that may be had. And so how can they help play a role in kind of leveraging and shifting behavior? How can funders play a role in helping leverage and shifting behaviors? But then thinking about this particular kind of matrix is like a nice kind of tool and way to think about in a concrete way what this could look like and the the diversity of, of approaches when you think about that level of processing and level of access being uh, a pathway forward. Yeah, well, that's a really nice summary. And I think it, it can really encourage anyone who works with qualitative data in research to, to really have a look at the paper in more detail, uh, particularly the end sections where you kind of outline specific actions for researchers, specific actions for research institutes, for funders, for, for data managers, and also for journals and for publishers. I think that really provides a lot of good examples of, of things that we could work on as a field and also a lot of food for thought for thinking about how we can integrate those practices into our own research and into our own institutes. And we're going to link, of course, to uh, the, the paper we're talking about in Nature Sustainability, and we can also link to the white paper uh, for those who are interested. And Stephen, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I have to follow up with one question that Michael wanted me to ask, and I, I think it's useful for people. What kind of advice would you give to someone who has never done social network analysis, but they're interested in, in getting started? Is there a particular place where you can go and guide them? And I can say that you did a webinar series with Michael Schoon, and that's linked to at least on our Environmental Social Science Network site, and I think other places for those who are interested. But uh, are there other places where where you could guide people if they're interested in getting started with, with social network analysis? Yeah, absolutely. That That's a... I appreciate that. It's great to hear that that's a link there uh, into uh, on the website. Uh, 
you know, I, when I first started, uh, I took one of these, uh, you know, MOOCs, these massive open online courses. Um, I find those can also be a really good way to get exposure. Uh, they give you a set of exercises to do and they kind of break it down because it can seem, you know, there's both, uh, when you, when you dive right into, you know, looking at papers that have, you know, if you're familiar with a particular field, you can dive into, um, you know, empirical papers that have been done, but there's a lot of nuance that is potentially lost and then, and you might not. So it might give you some concrete examples of like, Oh, these are the kinds of questions I can ask or how I could apply it. But then it's helpful to say, you know, take some sort of, uh, overview course or, you know, read some, uh, some background materials. I, I, I think of, I still go back to, there was a, uh, there was a book, uh, edited by Orion Bowden, it was by Bowden and Prell, uh, that uh, Social Networks and Natural Resource Management, Uncovering the Social Fabric of Environmental Governance uh, by Orion and, and uh, Christina Prell. And, and that one, uh, it just, it does such a nice job of not only giving uh, uh, a whole spectrum of kind of empirical examples, but they help kind of um, build, build you up in terms of kind of understanding that conceptual a theoretical and methodal methodological background that's necessary before you start diving into these concrete examples. Uh, Christina Prell has also written a really nice kind of intro to social network uh, analysis uh, book that helps to break it down because some of some uh, their levels of technicality can be, uh, you know, it's helpful to get uh, get your feet wet first and start to get familiar with some of the basic terminology before you dive into some of these other ones. Um, but yeah, you know, some of the massive open online courses, really good. And there's some great texts out there as well that are uh, that are great for those who are just kind of starting out. Awesome. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for your time today. I think uh, there's a lot of things I would like to continue asking you about, <laughs> things like the working at the science policy interface and, and maybe more on some social network analysis and fisheries. But uh, maybe we'll have you on another time if, if you're interested in that. Uh, I really appreciate coming on. That sounds great. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me on. thank you for listening to the podcast. You can find more information about all of our guests in the show notes for each episode. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, where you can share and further engage with the content, as well as give us your recommendations for future guests. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play, and it can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of a larger project called the Environmental Social Science Network, www.essnetwork.net. On the website, you can become a member and use all of the resources provided for free. This includes webinar videos, a blog, knowledge base, and using the website as a platform for your own projects. We appreciate your support.